Good evening, everyone. My name's Beth, and we'll be reading together from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 28. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanour or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kencray because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John. 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and the sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Good evening, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be here with you. If you are new or newish to WBC, um, then please fill in one of these Connect cards. They're also out on the welcome desk in the foyer. Um, and if you're online, um, then you can actually do that through our website as well. But if you're here, don't do it through our website. Go and grab one of those. Um, we'd love to hear how you came to be here uh, and work out together if being here long term uh, can be mutually beneficial both to you and also to us. Uh, one quick announcement on behalf of the Immerse Youth Group. Uh, thank you for putting up the sound uh, deadening pan dampening panels in the hall. Uh, the sound, or better, the lack of sound on Friday night was fantastic. Uh, good timing for our record number of young people attending, uh, including the Year Sixes who come up for fourth term of each year, uh, and two kids who had no connection whatsoever to WBC or people here and found us through our website. So praise God. Um, continue, to, please continue to pray for Immerse. Uh, a number of people have offered to help our, help out on an as-needed basis, which has been really good, but we really need long-term uh, youth group leaders who can commit to discipling the youth of our church in an ongoing way. Uh, if you'd like to talk further about that, then just grab me, Dave or Caitlin after the service. As Steve has said, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, we've just had chapter read, chapter 18 read. It wasn't an easy one. Lots of names and places. Uh, we don't even just need God's help to read it, but to understand it and respond rightly. So will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Acts and the uh, amazing challenges that we've already received. Thank you for the encouragement of the excitement of the word of God going out from Jerusalem further and further. Uh, thank you for uh, the resilience of those who are taking it, that even in the midst of persecution, that they still continue to push on and press out and make your name known. Lord, as we think about this chapter, uh, we again ask that you would enable us to understand why Luke chose specific things to, to write down for those original hearers to be able to understand what was going on and how they should live. And even more than that, that we would understand why that's been passed on to us and that by your spirit you would work in us so that we would actually live it out to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am very confident that everyone has heard the saying that there is no I in team. And so we do see the triumphant athletes these days, even in individual sports, thank their coach and their family. The HSC student who gets the marks that they want naturally thanks their teachers and their parents. While individual recognition is a good thing, wise individuals recognise that their success isn't dependent on them alone. And yet, even though we know this fundamental fact, I, I think that many people still read the book of Acts as if it were the acts of just two apostles. 
part one in chapters one to 12 is primarily about Peter, the Apostle Peter and what he did. And then part two from chapters 13 to 28 is all about the Apostle Paul with a, a small overlap in chapters eight to 12 in which both apostles are active. Perhaps Peter is passing on the baton to Paul. Now, sure, there are smaller roles for people like Barnabas and Silas, the people whom Paul debates and the Roman officials that we meet along the way. But if asked, I think that many would conclude that because the majority of chapters focus on Paul, Acts is his biography just as much as it is a history of the early church. Now, don't get me wrong, I do agree that both Peter and Paul play very, very big roles. But I also think that if we overemphasize Peter or Paul, it contradicts the evidence that we see in tonight's chapter. Much of chapter 18 repeats things that have already occurred in the book of Acts. So, for example, we could look yet again at Paul's strategy of preaching Jesus as the Messiah to Jews and God-fearers in the synagogues until opposition escalates, leading him to take the message to Gentiles again. We could talk again about Paul's continued practice of doing rituals and keeping Jewish festivals, even though he's become a Christian. We could analyse Paul's vision of Jesus in verses 9 and 10, or, or the attempt to get rid of Paul by bringing accusations against him to a Roman official. All of these things have happened, some of them multiple times already, but I think that the most unique contribution of chapter 18 is the new insights it gives us into the teamwork that was essential in spreading the witness of Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so tonight we're going to take the time to explore three very different partnerships. Firstly, in verses 1 to 11, the partnership between Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, Silas and Timothy. Secondly, in verses 12 to 17, we'll look at the partnership between Paul and Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And then finally, verses 18 to 28, the partnership between Paul and Apollos. So partnership number one, partnership with Aquila and Priscilla, Silas and Timothy. It is true that we learn more about the Apostle Paul than perhaps anyone else in the Bible other than Jesus. We know where Saul, also called Paul, was born and that he was a Roman citizen from birth. We, we know that he trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And from Acts chapter 18, verse 3, we learn that before he had moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem for his formal religious education, he'd first trained as a leather worker, presumably as an apprentice to his dad. That's how they did things back then. While his trade is commonly translated, as this is on the screen, tent maker, it was a much more diverse range of products that Paul would have made and also fixed. That such a profound theologian, missionary, pastor, author, writer of scripture was also at the same time a blue-collar worker certainly challenges some people's assumptions. But this insight clarifies statements like the one in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 12. They're not metaphorical. They were Paul's actual lived experience. His secular occupation probably gave him calloused hands, but it also provided the means to make a living wherever he went. And evidently he was quite at ease, whether he needed to work during the week to pay for food and lodgings, 
or whether a larger team and financial gifts from a distance provided the means for him to preach more regularly. In God's providence, it was Paul's secular occupation and his nationality that first led him to meet Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that would become incredibly important long-term ministry partners. Other historians confirm that the Emperor Claudius did indeed kick Jews out of Rome, which probably included others like Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews that had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We tend to separate Jews and Christians, but at the time Claudius didn't. He couldn't distinguish between them. Yet notice that what could have been a terrifying, disorienting, completely disillusioning experience instead became the opportunity to meet, to connect with, not just a, a great business partner, but a fellow believer set on proclaiming Jesus to the whole world. We'll see later in the chapter that as gifted Christians, Aquila and Priscilla were themselves capable teachers. And yet when Silas and Timothy arrived, having four workers in the one location earning money, evidently provided sufficient finances between them so that Paul could be freed up to give his full time to preaching. It's a beautiful picture of teamwork, mutual respect, humility, strategic thinking, sacrifice. Paul is the name that we remember, but his role was enabled in part by others willing to do their respective roles. What I hope is abundantly clear from Acts chapter 18 is that one is not better or more important than the other. Each person needs to make their contribution. It's only if so-called secular and sacred work are done for a united goal that they become the beautiful example of teamwork that we see here. Now, while the implementation is going to be different in our day, I think the principle still applies in a variety of ways. At an international level, the term tent making is often used to describe ministry in which people work in a job to be given access to a country that otherwise wouldn't let them be there. And that then gives them the opportunity to tell people in that country about Jesus. For 12 years, me and my family lived in Thailand, a country which still does openly allow missionaries to go in. Yet we didn't need to do any other occupation while we were there for that whole time because of the generosity of God's people here in Australia who valued what we were doing there. And so they sent money that enabled us to live and study and teach and even have holidays at the beach in Phuket. It's a great thing that Jonah is currently in Thailand doing something that I don't think any of us here could do. That Jono, Kerry and Elise are going to be in Chiang Mai very soon, that Melissa will fly in Outback Australia for MAF. But as we think about those exciting things, do we think of our money-earning work as what I do for me or as the God-provided means for us to partner with people like these in being a witness to Jesus? It's the undeniable implication of this chapter. But don't think that this united effort is restricted to cross-cultural or missionary work. In practice, a large percentage of the giving here at WBC facilitates all of the staff and interns at WBC not working in other jobs 
so that we can do the things that we've been set aside for right here in Wollongong. We've just heard, and some of us voted on Tuesday night to do exactly that for Sam, to enable him to take on the MTS next year. I think this partnership that's being described in verses 1 to 11 helpfully takes the issue away from a question of, do I need to give 10% to, do my bank transactions reveal that I'm partnering in Jesus' mission? Now, while money is definitely not the only way that we can partner, it is a good way. And yet, like taking temperature or blood pressure isn't the sole indicator of health, neither can our money usage reveal our partnership health. So make sure you look at the other things too. Don't get giving right and ignore the rest. Write letters, send emails, do other things on top of. And stark contrast to our individualistic society's belief that I work for my benefit, the cause of being a witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth overrides such a narrow and misguided selfish belief. This first partnership in verses 1 to 11 challenges us to new levels of unity and commitment. Now, I think partly that's because Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Silas and Paul all grew up in collectivist cultures that do this more automatically. I still remember very clearly our, our Thai teacher. Uh, she was an older lady at the time. She was teaching Christy and I how to speak Thai words, how to listen. Uh, and she bought a car even though she didn't have a license and had no intentions whatsoever of getting a license. Well, that's a bit strange, uh, but don't judge her. Uh, she wasn't a criminal. Her money-earning work was seen by her as primarily for the benefit of others, not for herself. She was buying a car so that her family could use what was needed for them. It was a challenge for me. I think likewise, Paul and his team probably more naturally think of we rather than me, which should be both a warning and an encouragement to us to partner in ways that might even feel, in, feel uncomfortable at first. So, so do write that email. Meet up with someone. There's so many things we can do. Now, the immediate outcome of extra preaching that Paul was released to stop doing tent making and could now preach full time was that he had to leave the synagogue because... This opposition yet again escalated into abuse. And yet in Corinth, the Christians and those interested in hearing more about Jesus didn't need to go very far. Right next door to the synagogue is the house of Titius Justice, a, a worshipper of God. Now, I don't know how that works out when you tell people, oh, I'm just going to go next door. Probably not real comfortable. But just as Lydia had done in Philippi, Titius Justice allows the team to use his house as the base for this newly started Christian church. Now, whether Crispus, the synagogue ruler, made the shift at that point, went next door as a Christian, or it happened sometime later, it's not clear, but as in every other place that Paul went, there is both acceptance and rising opposition, which makes chapter, uh, sorry, verses 9 to 11 feel very much like the eye of a tornado. Paul has been on the road telling people about Jesus for years, the only consistent thing that has been that at some point opposition ramps up and he needs to get out of town quick. But in Corinth, Paul is given a very special encouragement. He doesn't need to fear because this time Paul is to stay and, and to keep on speaking. Don't stop. 
for Jesus has many people in this city. It's a special promise for a unique situation and it, it leads to 18 months of teaching the Corinthians, the word of God, the, the longest explicit time Paul has stayed put in one place uh, up until this point in the book of Acts. Given everything that has happened before and a lot of the things that are going to happen afterward, it is clearly the exception to the rule rather than a promise that any of us can claim. And even for Paul, the, the lull in the storm had a very soon ending. Have a look at verses 12 to 13. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Which introduces our second partnership, Paul's partnership with Gallio, the proconsul. Notice that the charge that is brought, uh, that Paul's brought in on to this place of judgment is a very minor variation on the charge that had landed Paul and Silas in prison back in Philippi. And yet Gallio responds very differently to the magistrates of Philippi and the even earlier incident with Herod in Jerusalem. Rather than Paul being required to defend his actions or explain his teachings, Gallio is his surprised advocate. He dismisses the charges as unimportant. What are you bringing this irrelevant stuff for, for my court? And in doing so, he sets a surprising precedent. Now, I admit that portraying Gallio as Paul's partner is probably a little bit too generous. But what we may otherwise miss is that as proconsul, Gallio had more authority and influence than the magistrates in Philippi had. His decision here softens the decree of Claudius mentioned back in verse 2 that otherwise potentially could have seen Christians having to be on the run again, fleeing from persecution. Now, I don't think that that means we should think of Gallio as the shining example of someone seeking truth and justice. Notice in verse 17 that Sosthenes, the replacement leader of the synagogue that presumably took the place of Crispus when he became a Christian, well, Sosthenes gets beaten up right in front of the court. And Gallio brushes it off as irrelevant too. What's it to me? Now, we don't hear how it takes place, but by the time that Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians, it is almost certainly this same Sosthenes who's become a Christian and he co-authors that letter becomes a writer of scripture. Again, in the wider context of what has taken place throughout the book of Acts, what is clear is that Jesus is in control. Not Jewish leaders, not Roman authorities. It made absolute sense for Paul to be terrified of a negative outcome to the court case. But Jesus intervenes. Jesus can turn any situation around to bring about what is best to fulfil his plan. Which I think in the week that we've just had is slightly good news. A hospital blown up, hostages, more than a million people displaced. That's without even mentioning the continued cruelty that's taking place in Myanmar and the Ukraine or, or things taking place here in Australia. And so while we can't know what Jesus will do in response to our prayers, the only sensible thing to do in light of this passage is for us to bring all of our concerns to him in prayer. 
And I think that's not just the international conflict level problems. It includes your relational difficulties and financial concerns, the issues you're having with your studies or uncertainty about the future, your question of what organisation or, or what missionary is best to give your limited finances to, your, your sick relative, the friend who needs to hear about Jesus as saviour. He is interested in all of your concerns. So pray to him. And as we pray to him, remember that Jesus has a mission. He doesn't always let us in on why he makes the decisions that he makes. Why Jesus intervenes this time in Corinth to, to make it safe for Paul, and he didn't when he could have in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea is never explained to us. But we can be confident that Jesus is watching us with concern. He wants what is best for us and what will lead to his good plan being fulfilled. Now, after the case is thrown out of court, Paul it says Paul stayed on in Corinth. Some people think for up to another six months. But after the extended time in Corinth, he moves on with Priscilla and Aquila. They jump on board a boat to Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila would stay while Paul travelled on to Syria and the church in Antioch that he had originally been sent out from. As always, Paul spoke firstly in the synagogue at Ephesus, and even though those listening asked him to stay, a surprisingly friendly request given Paul's history, Paul says no and passes the ministry on to Priscilla and Aquila. He himself sails on to Caesarea, visits the church, presumably in Jerusalem, and then he heads back to Antioch. So he starts over in Corinth, they catch the boat over to Ephesus, Paul's there, preaches in the synagogue once, and then Priscilla and Aquila stay there while he heads on down to Jerusalem and back to Antioch. It's a long journey and there's lots of details that Luke passes over, but this then ends the so-called second missionary journey of Paul. And with no indication whatsoever of how much time has passed, verse 23, Paul then sets out yet again to visit the young churches that he's been involved in planting. So verse 24 introduces yet another partnership, one that's done at a distance, Paul's partnership with Apollos. Having studied together uh, 1 Corinthians back in 2021, hopefully many of you will recognise Apollos as the name of one of the very prominent leaders of the church at Corinth. And here in Acts chapter 18, we hear how that came about. Apollos, like Paul, and in fact most of the team at this stage, was a Jew. Like Paul, he grew up outside of Judea in Alexandria, an important city in Egypt. Like Paul, he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scripture, which means what we call the Old Testament. But unlike Paul, he had only heard about Jesus rather than meet him as Paul had done on the road to Damascus. And while Apollos is bold, spoke with great fervour and taught accurately about Jesus, his knowledge was incomplete. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him teaching in the synagogue, they invited him home and filled in the gaps in his knowledge. I think it's an incredible picture of both the heart to build up others and the humility of Christian leaders. Aquila and Priscilla could very easily have written Apollos off as dodgy. 
They could have judged his theology as inadequate, so we've got no time for this man. But rather than reject him, they invite him home for lunch and chatted about what he hadn't heard. It's a great model of our need to be generous in our evaluation of others, to to seek their growth, to lift them up, not push them down. And yet even with Aquila and Priscilla having a good motivation, Apollos could have very easily gotten his back up, insisting that I've got the qualifications, I'm the recognised leader, you're just tent makers, what are you saying? But instead he doesn't do that, he listens and he learns. He humbles himself and he acknowledges that he doesn't know everything. And this humbling of himself, the context of this chapter, makes him even more effective. So well respected is he in time that when he requests to be sent from Ephesus to Achaia, the church in Ephesus backs him 100%. And his going is an enormous benefit to the churches Paul himself had had a part in establishing, including the one at Corinth. I think at least, at least a part of what we see going on here is that inbuilt into Paul's ministry, into all ministry, is the practice of intentionally passing ministry on to others. His partners are anyone who takes on the ministry of sharing Jesus with others, even people that Paul himself doesn't personally meet. Timothy and Silas, yes, he's met. They're, they're trusted to stay in Berea and continue the work that Paul can't. Priscilla and Aquila grow through directly working with Paul. And after Paul left, Priscilla and Aquila lead the bringing in and building up, not just of new converts, but even men like Apollos, who were then sent on to other churches to further the mission. This training, developing and releasing is a normal part of ministry that we should be expecting to see in our time too. I think it would be very easy for us to restrict this to church leaders, to pastors and elders. But I think it's much better to conclude that it would just be different for everyone depending on what you're involved in. As parents, are we stopping and intentionally thinking, how do we model to our kids how to read the Bible? How do we pray? so that they're learning from us and our example. How do we show trust in God in difficult situations? Kids are going to learn more from experiencing it, seeing it, rather than just hearing it. Kids' church leaders, immerse and home group leaders can, can be involving others with a view to them being able to take on new groups, to take on new roles and responsibilities. As a church and as individuals, we should be encouraging people to get involved in MTS, to to go off to Bible college, to to go overseas. Now, how we play our part could be as simple as uh, and anonymous as giving some money so that our youth can have the cost of LIT, Leaders in Training, a a conference that happens each year in January. We can subsidise it so more of the kids can go along this coming January. Or it could be as involved as inviting someone over to lunch or arranging to meet up once a week and working through the Bible with them, helping them to understand the gospel and what ministry looks like more clearly. However we partner, chapter 18 of Acts confirms that there is no I in team. And so the questions I think we need to be asking is, firstly, are we in the team? If you're not, come and talk to one of us afterwards. If you are, then how are you doing 
at doing your part in the team? How are we using our money to facilitate the extension of God's kingdom? How are we interacting with others in order to build them up and make them more effective gospel workers? How are we receiving others' input so that we can become more effective gospel proclaimers? Jesus has told us that he will complete his mission. Let's partner with him and those he has given us as partners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this section of Acts, which shows us so clearly that ministry is not about solo work. It can't be done by one individual, no matter how greatly gifted. Even the greatest gifted people work together in teams. So we thank you that you've made it this way, that it actually fits in the, with the way that you designed us to work together with people that are different from us, that think differently, that act differently, that have different skills and abilities and experiences. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would enable us to understand those you have given us to work with, that we would be able to work well with them to your glory and the spread of your name from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. We ask it for your glory. Amen.